Urban Design London are a not-for-profit organisation supporting London's built environment professionals. Head to urbandesignlondon.com to find out more about our yearly subscription programme. You are listening to the brand new UDL podcast where we will be bringing you a roundup from our latest events focusing on planning and urban design related topics. This episode will give you an insight into the world of tech and planning. How can tech be used in planning? What's currently out there for us to use and what are the risks? These are questions which we asked Neil Manthorpe from Atkins and Joe Hammond from Kensington and Chelsea at our latest tech and planning event. And if you weren't able to make it on the day, this episode would also bring you a few of the highlights from a number of our speakers. So from Justin Kleiger of Future Cities and Savannah DeSavery of Built ID, who discussed the use of tech and community engagement and how it can be used to improve the planning system and process, making it more accessible and user-friendly. We'll also hear from Gareth Summer of TFL about the future of London skies and with increasing use of drone technology. So I'm here with Neil Manthorpe and Joe Hammond and have a few questions to ask them about the benefits, risks and future use of tech in planning. Hello, I'm Neil Manthorpe, uh, lead the landscape and urban design team in London. Uh, I'm Joe Hammond, I work for Kensington and Chelsea. What do you think are the benefits of using tech in planning? I think the real benefits of using tech in the planning system is around two areas, communication and efficiencies. So it can make the whole planning process more effective, more efficient through real-time data to help inform decisions. I also think the use of technology is particularly helpful in communicating and visualising what a proposal may look like and helping a wider audience to understand that and in turn for them to be able to comment on it. So from that side of things, it's the communication and the consultation process can be greatly improved, engaging more people from a wider audience as well. I think the main point is that planning is incredibly bureaucratic and difficult for the average person to engage with um, and anything that we can do to break down those barriers it's, it's, there are good reasons why those barriers are there and we've got, we have to work within a system but we just don't make it easy for real people and we've got to get better at that we really have. So you think using the tech will make it easier? Yes, yeah, I think that's what that's the challenge for tech. I think yeah. that, that, that we don't want tech for its own sake yeah. and we don't want people going, oh, the tech can do this, so we'll do this. We want to actually be looking at what's the problem and then using the tech to solve it, not, that, not the other way around. Yeah. And at what point do you think um, kind of the use of tech can become perhaps dangerous or risky? Like, can it go too far? Uh, of, of course it can and I think technology can go too far in, in any sort of industry and I think what we need to ensure remains the focus is what you're trying to achieve, what's the end result and the end result is getting the correct planning decision, what creates the right environment, the, the best place for people, what's the right style of architecture for a certain area of the city and technology needs to facilitate making the best decision as opposed to it all just being about the technology. Well I suppose the danger is that you you could create uh, expectations that you can't fulfill because particularly on the consultation, um, planning consultation side, people will be suggesting things and then eventually it will become clear that whatever's being proposed just isn't possible, viable, uh, 
going to make economic sense. So the danger is that you, you bring people in and they have higher expectations than you can really fulfil. I suppose that's the risk, obviously. And um, can you think of any examples or like kind of the best example of where tech is currently implemented and working best within the planning world? I think the uh, View City app, it's, it's clear to see that that's the, the future of the planning system, allowing people to experience and visualise buildings and developments in, in real time. Um, so I think that's, that's an excellent example. Well, I suppose the example I'd use at the moment is that I think the View City model is absolutely amazing. Um, I think it's, it's beautiful in itself, but I think that what it achieves in terms of being able to show people how the city really looks now and how it's going to change is is a game changer. And how realistic is implementation of some of these kind of ideas or the use of some of these tech models, perhaps in terms of funding or whether it would really be kind of realistically possible? We're working both with View City and Build ID at the moment and uh, we've been working on our own Smartisipate project. I think if the product's good enough and obviously the price isn't too high, um, actually it's got to happen. I think think it's all very realistic. I think the challenge always is the upfront cost. I think when you first trial these um, technology, whatever it is, it's always far more expensive. But in time over years, as more counties or more um, London boroughs adopt that technology, the price really drops away and um, enables more people to be able to use it. Um, and where do you see kind of the whole tech and planning going in the future? What do you think is the next step to kind of make things Well, I think, uh, as you're starting to see, there's a lot of virtual reality um, and you're able to experience spaces and places through VR. And I think that's increasingly happening more and more now. Um, we had it previously with you know CGI's and visualizations. I think the next step will really be into augmented reality. So people will be in the streets, in the spaces, in real time, in the environment where the building or um, proposal will be placed, and either through something like Google Glass and iPad, view how that building will look in situ, as opposed to viewing it in a virtual world. They'll view it in the the real world, and I think that was very much some of the thoughts that we had behind. Um, key to the city in developing augmented reality experiences um, and I think the next step really is to take that one and apply that to the planning process. Well I think I think it's back to the point I made before, it's planning and tech getting closer to the um, thinking of the real people on the street so it's the same way that computers changed um, and became intuitive, we've got to make planning intuitive, yes and, and I think it's very interesting the way that um, View City and I, they're all saying actually we don't need to compete, we need to, to work mm. together because it will be so much better if we do. Yeah. There was a quick overview from Neil and Joe about some of the technologies currently out there for us to use. Now we have a few snippets from what our speakers had to say. First, we hear from Savannah de Savary from Built ID about how to improve community engagement in planning using technology. So I'm Savannah Savry, I'm from Built ID, and we showcase the projects of today by having all of the leading consultants showcase their work, and it's all searchable in an interactive database, and we're trying to leverage that database and that track record to shape the projects of tomorrow more democratically. So the challenge we're really trying to address is community engagement. It's obviously only becoming more important, and there's a vocal minority who dominate the process. 
And for those that don't get involved, it could be because they don't have the time, it could be because they don't feel like they could have a voice there, they feel intimidated by it, or they don't have a strong opinion to share. Not everyone has a comment to give, but they do care about their local community environment and they do care about the generation. What we're trying to do is gamify community engagement so that you can get involvement from younger generations, busy parents who really don't have that time on a Wednesday when they get home to their kids, and really importantly, minorities people who English may not be their first language, but they could be an integral part of the community that you're trying to shape and develop in. The first part of how we do this is by providing clear, engaging updates. But the idea is that you have a clear channel of communication where your community can continue coming back to one place to understand what's going on with your project, so that they know, okay, we're working in a complex policy framework which began 15 years ago. It's not up for debate whether this scheme is mixed use or not. That's already been decided. What can we have a say on? What can we not? down to the construction process, we're going to be closing this road tomorrow for two weeks, things like that. We also provide clear facts, quick facts for you to share with people that you don't have to have a professional background to be able to understand what's going on and be educated about the scheme. Really important, we've designed this to go left to right and right to left. That means it can be translated into Urdu, Bengali, Arabic, whatever you need. It can be translated into those languages easily. Then the important part comes up, which is the dynamic visual polling. This is where you can hand over decisions that cost-wise and aesthetically, you're okay with either one going ahead and let the community feel a sense of agency, a sense of ownership over the scheme, and hopefully, therefore, a sense of emotional investment in it getting built. Data-driven design can come out of this. The most important part, in my opinion, is the closed feedback loop. It's the idea that you voted for A, this is how we're dealing with A. It's building that trust. With this platform, you have this influence decision part on the homepage so people can always see how they've been listened to and if they haven't been, why? What's important here is it can also be used for you to find out you have a very vocal minority who are angry about one particular issue. If you put it to a poll, you may find that's only 5% of the community. Everyone else is more concerned about the street lighting or the environmental performance or whatever it may be. And what that minority were concerned about doesn't reflect everyone. Equally, people can give feedback. We don't let the feedback be seen publicly. <coughs> However, the, the feedback comes straight through to you, or if it's a developer, straight through to the developer, where they can address it and deal with it and feedback. Another feature we're going to be bringing out is actually enabling geographic polling as well. So if you're doing a master plan or a local plan or just a big regeneration scheme, you can link the polls to particular areas of the local sort of environment that you're shaping. This is how we gamify it. So you need to incentivize people, especially generation rent, to get them involved, or if you're working in a community that have felt left behind, they're feeling disenfranchised and almost apathetic about community engagement. So the more people engage, the more they share with other people in the local community, the more points they accrue. Those points are then translated into money for one of three local initiatives. The local community member can choose which charity their points go to. So this could be a community centre, it could be a homeless shelter, it could be an initiative, it could be the local basketball court. As long as they're engaging, you're going to help support the local environment in ways they want. And as time gets on, goes on, we'll have enough data to be able to say, if you're doing a project in Hackney, X demographic are concerned about this, we'll have that sort of data to help with better data-driven design as well because of the analytics that we're collecting. But another important part is how easy it is to put stuff on here. So you have the Bill ID team that will always help and will put anything on there that you want, but we've designed it to be easier than using a Facebook page. So there's lots of uses for this, but our main focus is on using it for planning from the pre-planning app stage onwards.
Next, we have Justin Kleiger from Future Cities telling us about their programme which aims to make the whole planning system and process easier by collating all information into one place with a system which automatically updates with latest policies and information. Hi, I'm Justin Kleiger. I'm a senior urbanist at Future Cities. Um, but I'm going to be talking about the confluence between planning and technology and the future of planning. So the question really is, how can we harness the technologies that are changing the cities to, to plan them better? And my answer is we're not doing a very good job at the moment. So we asked the question at Future Cities Catapult how to build a digital planning system. Another project we did, which is we worked with Hackney and Southwark. They're actually now developing this project, project independently, which is fantastic. It's for a pre-app process. So what it does is it allows the user to input all their pre-app details into the system rather than submitting a pre-app form with some written information where the data is contained in a PDF. It's actually live raw data in the system. It then goes through and it connects into their digitized planning policy framework and allows the pre-app system to respond to the proposal and it actually gives an outcome to the user telling them whether their proposal would likely meet refusal or would receive refusal or, or approval. And finally this, this tool is called Planning Application Manager or PAM. Now this is a tool that we effectively are envisaging replacing the planning portal as controversial as that may be. You wouldn't be submitting a planning application with all your data in PDF form and through to the council. It would actually go live via this website, similar to the uh, pre-app one I showed before. But what's interesting is it would also, again, connect to the pl planning policies and, and give, as number one indicates, give feedback to the user or to the applicant that there might be a privacy issue or overlooking issue or that there's a, an issue with highway impact. Um, and it would help make the, the process a lot more digitised, a lot more smoother. So, all these things are great, but how do they connect to one another and, and make a, a system or a digitised planning system? So we looked at where the problems lie. We don't really know how to collect data properly. We also find the plan making process extremely, extremely rigid. It is extremely fixed. It, it doesn't respond to technological, political, cultural, economic changes that are happening during the plan making process. I mean, these are long term plans and they need to be responsive. So the third thing we identified that doesn't work is the application process. It's extremely opaque and it's quite ambiguous. It's reliant on consultants to navigate the process for us, mostly for the public as well. So we think that that also is something that needs to, needs to be amended. And in terms of engagement, we're certainly not using the most cutting edge forms of technology in terms of engaging the public. We don't, we, we don't do this well and we, I feel safe in saying that it probably creates a form of antagonism and a form of uh, struggle between the public and the planners and what we as planners are doing. So our vision is, a, is an integrated, agile planning system that works in a way that all the different parts, all, the, all, the, all the, the components belong to one another. And we understood this through the prototypes that we've been working through. So they would all feed into one another, they would all be responsive to one another. The, the interesting thing is, for instance, you would have a digital planning application that would then be submitted into a digital planning portal and would be screened against digital policies. And in that way, the outcome of that application or whatever the decision that is made would then be fed back into 
the policy or the plan making process. So effectively, a plan that is constantly updating itself, that is something we, we envisage seeing. Some parts of it we may, we may have gotten it wrong, we may not know, but we're certainly trying, and that's part of our, our attempt and, and our mission at Future Cities Catapult. We'd be looking at moving away from PDF documents where the information is locked into those documents and actually into the raw data making sure that it's open open source and open open based and web based so that everyone can access it in every place and that it's not owned by one particular organizational person because otherwise and we're not helping the, the, the market and the profession improve so um, just to finish as i mentioned we're not sure necessarily whether we're doing it right or wrong and we're open to discussions and we we certainly want to hear what people have to think about our vision and about our ideas um, we recently launched a workspace on slack called hashtag Plantech. They're all the different projects that are going through the market are up there. Each one has their own channels. Please, by all means, download Slack and join. Thank you very much. And finally, we have Gara Summer, TFL, who makes a more futuristic approach, looking at the use of drones. Hello everyone. So I'm Gareth Sumner. I work in TfL's Transport Innovation Director, and we look at basically what's changing in the world, particularly in London, um, and figure out what TfL might need to do about that, essentially to keep London moving in the kind of future context. So transport has really started to change in the last 10 years, and it's not just about transport. It's about looking at the wider set of change which is happening in the world. For example, new lifestyles. So today, it's much more likely now for people to um, have a Saturday or a Friday night in watching Netflix and getting Deliveroo and Uber Eats. People are changing the way they consume entertainment, the way they consume services. They expect everything on demand when they want it. And then technology, drones, robots, autonomous vehicles, all of these are opportunities but also risks and we're trying to understand what those um, opportunities and risks present to, to mobility in London. And then drones. Drones is a really interesting topic, um, which I've spent quite a lot of time over the last two years trying to understand what drones means for London. And I'm going to start, I'm going to talk about that in a bit more detail now. So in 2016, TfL started using drones, uh, or was trialling drones during the construction of the Elizabeth Line crossrail to inspect the tunnels. And again in 2017, there were loads of trials of what has been described as flying taxis, flying cars, basically passenger drones, new forms of aircraft. So there's clearly an awful lot happening in this area. But the kind of things that we ask in, in the team is actually, do we want that? Is that beneficial to London? What kind of things do we think about if that is a possibility? We've got to recognise that London's airspace is already the most congested in the world. And also, back to, back to the point I made earlier, that everything that we do has got to be in the context of the policy that the Mayor has already set us. And when we think about these challenges, we don't just do it ourselves, we try to um, work with others. In urban air mobility and drones, we've been working a lot with an organisation called Nesta, and we basically looked at what we thought drones might be able to do in London. We looked at all these potential use cases. We focused most of our time on one specific use case, which was all about whether drones could be used to move things between hospitals in London. So we did a bit of an analysis, very basic analysis, just looking at what the time saving would be if you move things by drone rather than by road transport. And we were kind of quite surprised to find that actually we were getting time savings of up to 90%, which in some cases was an hour time saving between hospitals, which we thought must be beneficial to the NHS. But to operate a scale like that, you need to think about how traffic is managed in the skies in London, how drones don't bump into each other, how you make sure you prioritise certain types of delivery. You need to wait until safety is proven. So as I said earlier, London is never going to be the place to 
tactical trial, high-risk technologies, until the safety is, safety is proven elsewhere. Um, so stepping back to the learning for the whole of London for the Flying High Challenge, first of all, it was acknowledged, identified that London's airspace is really valuable. It's already really valuable. It, it provides light, it provides fresh air sometimes. Um, and we've really got to think about what we're going to use that airspace for. Um, capacity is always going to be limited, and therefore, if drones are going to use it, then we have to think about what types of uses we want drones to be deployed put to in London skies. We think that should focus primarily, or at least initially, on societal benefit use cases, so use cases that can save lives. So, for example, delivering a defibrillator to a heart attack victim. It should be also be used for innovation public services, to provide better services with less money. So, for example, using drones to deliver blood samples between hospitals. Um, and finally, making construction and infrastructure, maintenance and management safer and more cost-effective. And finally, London should use its international reputation for innovation to set the parameters of what is acceptable in large, complex cities, because not everything should be acceptable in a place like London. But because of London standing, it has the potential to actually set those parameters. And should think about what those parameters should be going forward. And should think about developing urban test beds for the urban applications of drone technologies. So that's not about testing and trialling drone technologies first in London. That's about thinking about how they can be deployed in London in the long term, working out how a test bed could um, demonstrate that. So stepping back a little bit and thinking about the airspace as a whole and what it might look like in the future. Um, within the airspace, there could be inspection and surveillance drones. These will probably operate in relatively controlled areas over construction sites or within um, infrastructure depots, railway lines, etc. There could also be delivery drones. These will be flying over parts of the city and they'll be landing on a relatively large number of different locations. And then there could also be passenger drones sometime in the future. These will probably land in fewer locations within London, maybe at transport hubs, maybe on premium office uh, blocks, but it's all going to have an impact on London. Ultimately, we think this could change the whole of the city into an airport, which means we'll have to think very differently about London's airspace. And it's not just about Heathrow anymore, it's about the whole of the city. And we think we're going to have to start talking about London's airspace, about being for the benefit of all Londoners, um, and the value that's unlocked by um, London's airspace being for Londoners. And we think that there are a number of, key, number of things which we think need a lot more thought, and we need to think about in more detail. These are just five of those things. The first one is public perception and public benefit. So we really don't know that much about what the general public think about drones, whether they think it's a good thing, a bad thing, um, whether they think they'll personally benefit from it. And we need to talk to the public to understand what their views are um, and communicate to the industry also what those public views are to make sure that when the drone industry, if the drone industry does make a real impact on London, it makes a positive um, secondly, we need to look at the environmental impact, so the noise, the visual impact of drones. I'm pretty sure none of you have experienced 50 drones passing over your garden a day. No one really knows what that sounds like yet. We need to understand that more. We need to understand how we can control it going forward. Um, we need to look at the level of control. So at the moment, it's a combination of the local planning authority and the CAA, which define whether hel heliports can be built or not. But obviously, this is much different from a traditional heliport, and local authorities need to start thinking about what that means. Regulation and licensing. Currently the CAA regulate all of airspace, all airspace in the UK, including all services which operate within the airspace. However, as those services become much more localised and end up landing and taking off within cities, maybe there needs to be a more localised um, regulation regime. So in the same way as the taxis and private hire vehicles are regulated 
within London by TfL. Maybe in the future, flyer taxis might need to be regulated by TfL. And finally, air traffic management. Someone is going to, someone or something or some system is going to have to manage how all of these things, which could be flying around um, a city skies, don't bump into each other. How you make sure that you can prioritise the emergency drone, which is taking a defibrillation to someone, or prioritise the police drone, which needs to get to the scene of a crime. That is no small feat and needs to be solved before uh, these uh, machines can operate in the skies over cities. So we think all of these things need to be addressed pretty soon if we're going to start to see drones in the skies of London. And we need to make sure that we consider all of that in through the lens of the current mayor's transport strategy, working on what it means for healthy streets, whether it's positive or negative, whether it can help to solve things like congestion, or whether it's just another negative thing that's going to be imposed on London. We hope you enjoyed the episode and make sure to follow us on Twitter at UDLondon to find out when the next episode focusing on public space design will be available and also to find out about our upcoming events. See you soon. Thank you.